Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Good evening. Welcome to Tell Me Everything here on Sirius XM Progress. My name's Joe Sudbay. I'm guest hosting for John tonight. And I have to tell you all, a year ago, I was guest hosting for John. It was a Wednesday. I was actually speaking with Keith Price, comedy daddy. We all love him. He was on last night, usually every Wednesday night. And while we were talking, Russia invaded Ukraine. It was one year ago tonight that we got that news that Russia had launched a war of aggression against Ukraine. And there was a lot of speculation that Ukraine would fall and would be conquered by Vladimir Putin and the Russian army. And that was so far from what happened, so far from the reality. Ukraine has stood strong. This week, as we all know, on Monday, President Joe Biden was in Ukraine. He was in Kyiv. That's a place Vladimir Putin will never be. And this war continues. The president of the United States has shown his strong support. The American people have shown their strong support. There's some new polling actually from Fox News, Fox News polling, which is actually pretty good, that said uh, support for USA to the war effort in Ukraine. Let's be there as long as it takes. Over 50 percent, just around 50 percent of Americans said that. About 46 percent said it should be a limited time frame. But this was not a war that Ukrainians chose, nor anyone in Europe. This was a war on Western democracies, and it has been so important to fight back against it and to fight back against just the brutality. And this week, the president called them out, said that they were committing heinous war crimes, and they are. The Russians are doing that. It's despicable what they're doing. And Vladimir Putin, it remains to be seen, you know, what happens with him. You're starting to see a lot of discord, very quiet discord among the billionaire class in Russia, the the uh, oligarchs, because they're suffering and they're not going to get out of this anytime soon unless Russia gets the hell out of Ukraine. And Putin doesn't care how many hundreds of thousands of people of his citizens he kills. He just doesn't care. It's just bizarre to watch. And it all started one year ago today. Today, the United Nations actually voted 
had a resolution to encourage the withdrawal of Russia from Ukraine. The UN General Assembly voted 141 to 32 to adopt a resolution showing strength and solidarity among the international community. There were 32 abstentions. When I say 141 to 32, 32 abstentions, including China. Only seven countries voted against it with Russia. Belarus, Syria, North Korea, Nicaragua, Eritrea, and Mali. But 141 nations, there is international resolve against what Russia has done. And Vladimir Putin has isolated his country, and that was a choice he made. You know, it was a choice that dictator made. And it is a war on Western values. This week, he was ranting about LGBT people again. That's a big favorite of his. He, his policies, he, he, he's watching what American, the American anti-LGBT community is doing and echoing that. This is a war on all of us. Anyways, just we will talk about that more through the show. I know in uh, the next hour, I am going to be talking to Dr. Jason Nichols. I'm really excited to talk to him. He's a terrific guest. Uh, just listening to him on any night with John is great. And I know that's one of the issues we'll talk about, too. In a few minutes, I'm going to be joined by Jack Jenkins, who's a reporter for Religious News Service. And Jack is terrific. He used to work at the Center for American Progress, wrote at the blog Think Progress. He's written this piece about uh, Christian nationalism which is a very frightening concept, uh, but it has really taken over in northern Idaho. And none other than Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene was there speaking to the to the Christian nationalists recently. Jack has written a really... Um, <laughs> I read it and I was like, holy shit. Not that we don't know this is happening, but when you read about it, you read how organized it is. It was very much worth, um, and, and I'm really excited he's going to be able to join us. And in the final hour, Jordan Zakarin, he's terrific. He works for More Perfect Union, but he also has a new uh, newsletter that I subscribe to, Progress Reports. I, I swear, Jordan is just on top of all of it. He's following state legislatures. He's following labor news. He's following federal news. So he's always a terrific guest. And... He and I have great disdain for the same people, which is such a bonding experience for both of us. So I'm really looking forward to this show tonight. We have a lot to cover, and I want to hear from you, too. I want to hear from all of you tonight. I want to talk about what's going on in East Palestine. Pete Buttigieg was out there today. But let's get on the phones, and let's start there. Mitch in Kent State. Mitch, how are you doing? Joe, it's so good to hear you. How are you, my friend? Good. How are you doing? Good, thank you. It's been a while. Uh Joe, do you hear about this Arizona um, attorney general who decided oh. to with? Oh my God! Yep. With all the sh- findings of the, sh- of the, 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 there was no fraud in the, in the 2020 election in Arizona. Anything yep. they can do to, uh, you know, hide the facts, to, uh, you know, shuffle the, uh, the deck. Anything they can do to uh, make themselves look like, uh, you know, they're on top of things. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And uh, just another example, just another Let's- example of their incompetence. Well, let's just dig into that a little bit, because I, I think it's important. And, I, and many people have probably seen the reporting, but it was former Attorney General Mark Brnovich knew, knew his investigators at the Arizona 
attorney general's office did not uncover any criminality or fraud in the 2020 election. He knew it, but he kept it up. He kept it up. He kept it up. Fortunately, (laughs) right? And now he ran for Senate, lost to that whack job, Blake Masters, who lost to Mark Kelly. But there's a new attorney general, uh, a Democrat, Chris Mays. And she released all of this information. She's already changed the way the office is going to run. No more of this bullshit looking for fake voter fraud. She's looking at election security. She, like, Mitch, I just want to say what uh, Chris Mays won her election by, I think it was 230, about 252 votes. Mm -hmm. She won her election by about 250 in 52 votes. This is how important elections are. I'm looking at it right now. It's like 260 votes. It was crazy. That's how close it was that she won by. And if she didn't win that election, we wouldn't know this because the guy who was running against her, the Republican, a guy named Abe Hamaday, was just as bad as the rest of them. Uh, I'm so glad you brought this up because I wanted to talk about it tonight. It says so much, right? Yeah, it's just uh, more of the same, just more of the same, Joe. It really is. You know, the, the party, the Republican Party, you know, it's, uh, first of all, they have, they don't care about the middle class. They could care no. less about the middle class. It's, it's, that's been their bread and butter for years. You know, and it's just being more and more exposed every day. I mean, you know, their biggest concerns were banning books, you know, and uh, what schools can teach and can't teach. And then, uh, of course, you know, Second Amendment, you know, that God forbid we uh, got to have the Second Amendment, you know, uh, you know, the guy have a gun in each hand, and then yeah. uh, you know, and then uh, restricting rights of minorities, you know, LGBTQ and and, re- and women's rights. You know, it's just uh, it's just more of the same, and uh, it you know, it, it's just uh, so sad, well, Joe. Just there's, so sad. There's, there's one other thing they like to do, Mitch, and it's been on full display in your state these past few weeks. They like to cut regulations for corporate America. They like to give tax cuts to corporate America, but they certainly want they want to give corporate America everything they want. And this train derailment in East Palestine, I think, has really been uh, shown a lot a a spotlight on this. You have these Donald Trump was there last night. Donald Trump cut regulations for the rail industry at the behest of rail corporations. Pete Buttigieg was out there today, right? Marco Rubio wants Pete Buttigieg fired and. Buttigieg was like, the last time I heard from you, you were writing to me, telling me to make weaker regulations for the right. train industry. Right. right. Like Mitch, that is right. so <laughs> uh, it just drives me crazy. It's so ridiculous. It really is. And, uh, you know, it's, it, you know, they're the ones, you know, safety helps to hell with safety and right. regulations. And, you know, and, and, and they laughed at the EPA. I mean, uh, it's just uh, it's just so obvious that it's like uh, they're playing the, the opposite game. OK. And like, uh, you know, it's it just it's just so foolish. It really is. Joe. But uh, I know we're about, we're about 60 miles north uh, where that happened. Uh, but, oh, I was going to uh, ask you. Yes. You're not too yeah, far. Yeah. Yeah, we're and, about uh, miles north, yeah. Biden called Governor DeWine right after it happened and offered anything. And DeWine never even asked Biden to declare a, an emergency, you know. And then all of a sudden, Fox News, realizing this looks bad for Republicans, started to pile on. But 
It's just, it's, I'm going to play a clip actually from Fox News where they kind of admitted what happened. I'll play that in a little bit. But yeah, Mitch, it's, uh, it, it, this, is, this is who the Republican Party are. Exactly. They expose themselves sure. over and over. And, uh, for sure, for sure. But good talking you. to you, Joe. And by the, by the way, I was just thinking a year ago, I was telling John, we saw John and Frank in New York uh, that same, well, it was the night after uh, the invasion at uh, Ukraine. But uh, oh, they were, him, so him and Frank were doing a show in New York. And the day after the invasion, but uh, just started maybe least that's, a year already. So, maybe that's yeah. why I was um, guest hosting because uh, I was guest hosting. And uh, there you go, yeah, for, for John. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it, so, that's so funny. Good to, hear you, Joe. good to hear you too, Mitch. Thanks for the call. Let me just play this clip because uh, talking to Mitch made me think about it. This is actually Fox News today, kind of acknowledging what happened in East Palestine. The White House. Right. Uh, uh, speaking of the White Good House, uh, apparently regulations regarding train safety were changed during the Trump administration. Uh, this particular railroad and others lobbied President Trump to dismantle an Obama-era rule that would have required railroads to update their braking systems. And uh, apparently the Obama administration had pushed for it to govern transportation of hazardous materials after about half a million uh, barrels of crude were dumped. Uh, but ultimately, the Trump administration undid that and said the costs exceeded the benefits. <laughs> yep. That's exactly that's exactly right. That's what happened. And, and Donald Trump was out there last night pretending he had nothing to do with it. Um, yeah. So there you have it. That's exactly what happens. It's amazing. You know, sometimes Fox personnel will say things on air that are true. Usually they don't, as we know, as we found out last week in that filing in the case that Dominion has brought against Fox News. And we saw that a lot of the Fox News personnel know the truth and they talk to each other about the truth, like the fact that Trump lost the election. And then they go on TV and lie about it. And uh, that I'm telling you that Dominion uh, filing asking for a motion for summary judgment. My God, it said so much about Fox News. Anyways, let's stay on the phones because I know we got some more callers. Uh, Bill in Orlando. Bill, how are you doing? Joe, my old friends. Good to talk to you again. How are you? I'm doing well. Hey, uh, uh, on Trump, I saw the video today of him out there at, at the, the Trainsbreck site, and I saw him wearing these shit brown galoshes on his feet. I don't know, you have to look at the video, and it's like his, his pants are tucked in these galoshes and in, in, in these boots. And, and, and he didn't want to get the fucking dirt or, or any of the oh. grease on his on his nice pressed pants. You got to see it. It's just funny. It's it, it, look at the video of it. I just I, I always look for the the, the the shit things about him. <laughs> <laughs> it's just funny as hell. But Marjorie Taylor Greene, I want to talk about her. And, and you know, this woman has a lot of power, and 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 she's spouting off a lot of shit. And I want to see it on the congressional record. I want to see her with the. C-SPAN cameras on her on the congressional floor with one of those big fucking uh, placards or whatever and, and, and her divorce plan. And I want to see exactly what the fuck she's talking about. You know, uh, instead of being on faux pas news and all this other bullshit, you know, and I want to see because I want the American people to see it like like they did when <laughs> when they had the, the whole week there picking uh, McCarthy for his, his side gig there. 
because she's in command now. What do you think? <clears throat> oh, look, I, I, I saw a clip today of um, Mitt Romney being asked about what she said, and and he dismissed it, and he said, you know, Abraham Lincoln dealt with this, you know, back yeah. a, a long time ago. But I think every single one of them should be asked about it. Sh- Sean Hannity was talking about it the other night on his show, like acting like it's a legit thing. I think every yeah. single person should be asked. Your governor should be asked. He wants to be president. Does he want to be president of the whole country or does he want to have a divorce? You know, I, 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 Don't get I, I think. Don't I know, I know, I know. Because when we go down that, when we go down that path, Bill, <laughs> it's, I, it's, I know. I, I, I will say though that a lot of protests, students are protesting. He's trying to undermine higher yes. education because, of course, he is. He's actually um, proposing to overturn a bill that would let undocumented migrants pay in-state tuition. Something Rick Scott signed as governor um, that had, was yeah. sponsored was sponsored by. The lieutenant governor, the current lieutenant governor, Jeanette yeah. Nunez. It, it just shows what frauds they all are. Um, but yeah, and I think um, when it comes to Marjorie Taylor Greene, she does run the party. And we saw that. I think that was on full display um, when we were watching the State of the Union. When she was heckling Biden, she had been warned not to. Kevin McCarthy sitting there in the speaker seat that he only has because she lets him sit in that speaker seat. Yeah. And he was trying to shush her yeah. and he couldn't do a goddamn thing about it. Um, so, yeah, yep. it's uh, that she's running the show and let's not pretend otherwise. We're going to talk about her in a few minutes with Jack Jenkins and her role in Christian nationalism, too, Bill. So I, thanks I, for. Oh, I was going to say, I just remember you quick the first night. I don't remember you the first night of the war, but I remember the, when the Dobbs, uh, when the whistleblower blew it. I remember oh, you yeah. were on John's show that night. Remember that? I remember all yeah. oh, was, was on, on Dean's Dean, show. That was how I was on Dean's yeah, show yeah, that night. Yeah, <laughs> I remember Christ. that. I, I do it. I, so I, I listen. Sometimes I'm sleeping, but I'm always here, Joe. It's nice to talk to you again. I know you Always good so. to talk to you, Bill. Thanks for the call. Let's talk to Paul in New Jersey. Paul, how are you doing? I'm all right, Joe. This is the first time I get to talk to you. I mean, all the time, I, all the all the days I've been hearing you, and all the months and everything. I, this is the first time I actually get to talk to you. Well, I'm glad you called. Thanks for calling. I just wanted to say that thank God that this guy lost to President Biden because I think. I mean, you were talking about how resilient the, the Ukrainians were, or the Ukrainians are. I yep. think. If this guy would have won, I think the Ukrainians would have actually lost. Yeah. Yep. Because he was he was not he was not going to get the funding the funding from this guy. Yep. I I agree. I, I I think I think Trump would have signaled that it was perfectly fine for uh, Putin to invade, and he yeah. says you know the way he talks about it now is oh it wouldn't have happened if I was president bullshit I think it would have that's bullshit. exactly what would have happened. And I think yeah. that's what it actually was, was the, what, they were, what he was waiting for. That guy was what Putin was waiting for, because yeah. you know they were talking about it, they were threatening about it, and all this threat, all this threat. And next thing you know, he was he got. I mean, when did he attack in February? Yeah, it was February. And seriously, he yeah, was fe- yeah. yeah. He was literally waiting for to see the results of this uh, of this election. See how see if he, he could attack, and then it, yeah. when it didn't pan out the way he wanted to. Just waited a few more weeks, and then he just went. And he just went and did it because yep. he already had the he already had the troops all over mass all around the border there. So he was just yep. like, "Oh, might as well go for it." And I'll tell you, it must have. We know it drove Putin crazy to see Biden in Kiev 
this week. You know, you know it drove Trump crazy to see him do that. You know it did. Oh, yeah. It, right? Right? No, and, uh, and, and here's a funny, and the, the, the irony of this other guy, of this guy, he, um, I mean, I had a friend of mine, you know, a, a friend of mine who, he was posting oh, how good uh, um, that guy is because he went over, he went over the to, to Ohio to, to give them hamburgers. Yeah, I'm mean, like, did he, did he run out of a did he run out of a, a, a paper towels? Yeah, right, right, Paul. Exactly. That's what I was thinking too. What's he going to do? Throw paper towels? Instead, he gave him a few hats and some Trump water. And you know, yeah. and what else did he give them? Weaker train regulations too. And exactly. this is the th- they forget this part. They forget yep. being a good guy because he did this. Yeah, we have to. We have to constantly remind them. We have to. All right, Paul, thanks for the call tonight. I appreciate it. And it's good to talk to you. Call again when I'm guest hosting. I love it. Uh, Let's try and squeeze in one more call before we have to go to a break before our guest. And I see my friend Sean in California is on the phone. Sean, what's going on? Hey, brother. So lots of things, uh, obviously. uh, Well, first, Sean, let me ask you. Are you under yeah. a winter storm warning? Because most of California seems to be under winter storm warnings, even in the southern part of the state. Are you OK? We are completely fine, um, but okay. we have had a, a, a totally um, different January and February in the past, like, 10 years. So it's been tons of, of rain. And uh, uh, right now it's very cold. We had a little hail today. But so far, knock on wood, uh, we're fine uh, where I am in the East Bay, which is the Bay Area. But yeah, 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 yeah. There's some. But there's he, some. There's a blizzard warning in Southern California, and I know there's some winter storm ridiculous. warnings not too far, not too far east of where you are. So, anyways, just want to check in because uh, no, I'm, I'm a weather geek. That. I love following weather. We're we're, we're going to have uh, some craziness going forward, obviously, until we get off the the petro which is yeah. exactly why i'm calling so we're talking about this derailment and pete Buttigieg has done a great job mayor pete has ju- he's done everything that he could possibly do but i don't i think that's uh you know besides the point here the the vinyl chloride that's in these railroad uh containers as they drive, you know, do the railing across our country is the problem. Vinyl chloride is used to make PVC pipe, plastic products that we all just use. And and I admit that we've got plastic products around here. I wish I wasn't using. There are so many alternatives to because they mix that vinyl chloride with petrochemicals and oil derivatives and then they make these for us to be convenient so we can have a basket here uh, uh you know a tupperware there and blah 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 i don't want to you know mess up companies but what i'm saying is there are alternatives to this and we have just been killing ourselves for too long you know the fact of the matter is we shouldn't be driving this horrible caustic chemical around the country at all and, and we need to get that law changed, you know. And, you know, these people that have suffered in that area, um, it's horrible. But, yeah. you know, we have to ask the question, if, if, it was, if it went through Cleveland, would you be hearing about it? Hell no. Because we well, don't care if black folks are affected. 
Well, and I'll tell you, this is the other thing, too. I think that this has been, and it's what, what our friend John Russell said the other day, this has been a gross display of corporate power because yeah. it is exactly Donald Trump weakened regulations. Look, it, you know what? It all started with Reagan. It all started with Reagan, right? Deregulation, deregulation, let business do what it wants. And we've had far too much of it. Democrats have played along, too. I think the Clinton administration did a little too much of it. Obama started to tighten regulations, and then we had Trump going back, and Biden is getting back at it. And we need to. And we need to end these corporate monopolies. We need to end this gouging that they all do to us. John Russell wrote on Twitter that this this debate brings into focus just how captured our whole system is by huge companies with more money than God that face no accountability. That's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. Hey, uh, Sean, it's good to talk to you. I'm glad you're safe out there. I got to take a break because we're going to have a guest in a few minutes. But it's always good to talk to you. Talk soon. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes and we'll be talking to Jack Jenkins. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome back. So today, you know, <laughs> scanning around for news, thinking about what we're going to talk about. And I came across this article, how big Christian nationalism has come courting in North Idaho. And I started reading it and I was like, holy shit, pardon my language, but holy shit. So I reached out to the author, Jack Jenkins, who's a reporter for Religious News Service. He covers the intersection of religion and politics. And I said, please come and talk about this tonight with us. I'm so glad you could do it, Jack. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So let's start big picture and give us an overview of what you found in North Idaho. And then we'll dig into it a bit. Yeah. So, I mean, I I had started hearing, you know, reports and seen other reports of kind of, you know, Christian nationalism or a version of it emerging in Idaho in general and then particularly in North Idaho. And they use the term North Idaho, not Northern Idaho in the region. And um, and so, you know, what I was particularly interested in is both the religious elements of this, you know, what faith leaders are kind of trumpeting this ideology and how is this making an impact politically. Um, so I went out there and what I what I found was that it was having a significantly larger impact than even I expected. Not only is there a bigger groundswell of support for this ideology or really kind of a coalition of ideologies in North Idaho, um, there's actually a little bit of a, a rich history of it 
um, in this region. And uh, it's actually starting to impact not only the local politics of North Idaho, but Idaho as a state and even bleeding over into other adjoining states, particularly Montana as well. Well, okay, so let's I I know it's a term that we hear a lot and we um, and and we've heard more and more over the past few years. And um, there have been some great uh, uh, um, people come on this channel and talk about Christian nationalism. But just just again, as a refresher, remind everyone what Christian nationalism is. Yeah. This is, um, you know, it's one of those things where there's actually some debate about it. But I actually use a relatively broad definition. I believe that, you know, I, I, my working definition for my reporting is that Christian nationalism is the belief that America was founded as a Christian nation and that it's either strayed from that and needs to return or it needs to you know, maintain that Christian identity. And arguably that second part is even more important than the first. You know exactly what they mean by founding. You can find different interpretations of that among Christian nationalists. But this belief that America needs to be a Christian nation, that it should be reflected in our government is kind of the, the core um, binding belief. And then there's a myriad of Christian nationalisms underneath that big umbrella. Um, but they tend to hang out together in political contexts, right? And it was deeply ascendant um, under Trump. He, Trump actually, um, you know, arguably used it to his advantage to get elected and used it throughout his time in office. And then it was also uh, most infamously very represented during the January 6th insurrection, the attack on the U.S. Capitol. Christian nationalism was very visible during that instance as well. So there's a spectrum of beliefs here um, that all kind of are undergirded by that core idea. Yeah, it is. um, It is very um, prominent in right wing circles. And you saw that. And I I was talking to one of our callers earlier um, in the show, Bill in Orlando, and we were talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene being an actual leader in the Republican Party, a true leader in the Republican Party. She obviously has a lot of control in the United States House of Representatives. We saw her this week call for a national divorce. She's a prominent player in this movement, and she was actually in North Idaho. Talk a little bit about that and and what her message was. Right. So one of the things that uh, was really interesting about last year is that a, f- a few journalists like myself have been covering Christian nationalism, and, and that was kind of the term that emerged to kind of describe this phenomenon. And it was relatively rare to hear somebody you know use that to describe themselves. But last year, Marjorie Taylor Greene started identifying as a Christian nationalist, and then she called for the Republican Party to be the party of Christian nationalism. That's her words. And so this kind of became a part of her political identity. Um, well, the the Kootenai County um, Republican uh, Party, they had which is which is the county that kind of envelops Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, Idaho in North Idaho, called her in um, to speak at a fundraiser. And, uh, you know, so she it was it was right after kind of um, State of the Union. She actually wore the same white jacket that she had worn um, at the State of the Union. Um, and then she gave roughly an hour long speech at this uh, Kootenai County Republican um, committee meeting and this fundraiser. And, and I should mention that you know faith was a recurring theme throughout the evening. There was this opening prayer led by this local pastor who also said that, you know, God, we need to put God back in Idaho. Um, there was a, a, a trio of um, speeches by local homeschoolers, you know, um, two of which noted the explicit faith 
elements as part of their homeschooling and also part of their messages and it referred to America's Judeo-Christian values. And then when Marjorie Taylor Greene got up there um, you know, to talk, she talked for about an hour. She covered a lot of the topics you hear her discuss in other spaces, such as, you know, um, sympathy for those who were arrested for taking part in the attack in the U.S. Capitol, you know, erroneous claims about the 2020 election being stolen. But then as she concluded her message, she kind of turned it to a religious theme and she accused Democrats in Washington, D.C. of having abandoned God, turning their back on God. And then she kind of talked about how they you know, needed to answer um, to the sword of biblical truth, which she said could hurt you. Right. And and, and throughout this you know, speech and, and including this era in this section, you could kind of hear people you know, not only cheering and applauding, but also shouting a men. And so it was a very receptive audience for her message um, that is often steeped in the Christian nationalism that she claims. Jesus. And um just uh, I, I want us to remind our listeners, uh, Coeur d'Alene has been in the news quite a bit. Last June, there was a pride, LGBTQ pride celebration underway in that town. And the Patriot Front uh, members showed up. 31 of them were arrested because they were prepared to riot at it. So just to give some context of where we are and what other things happen in this part of North Idaho. So... Um, um, this is this. It's so interesting, Jack, reading about the role Marjorie Taylor Greene plays in all of this, too. And she and you report she does actually sell T-shirts, proud Christian nationalist. Um, you know, I don't know. I kind of feel like when you have a member of Congress talking about the sort of big biblical truth that will hurt you. What kind of message is she trying to send with that, do you think? I mean, it doesn't sound, it sounds kind of ominous. I mean, I, I think this is one of the interesting elements of modern Christian nationalism. It's very um, interested in this project of taking back the country, right? And um, whether it's Marjorie Taylor Greene or others, this appeal to this kind of language that you know, this godly nation needs to be reclaimed and that particularly Democrats, um, sometimes even their fellow Republicans, um, have abandoned these principles and they need to be reclaimed. And so, um, again, while Christian nationalism is a spectrum, there is absolutely a more kind of both metaphorically and also militant, um, literally militant wing here that often kind of appeals to violence. Um, and, you know, there's there's actually a Christian nationalism connection even to that um, patriot front Mm -hmm. uh, instance that you mentioned earlier that I can get into. Um, but I think that that, you know, when Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of frames this um, this message of, you know, she's fighting for the America that should be against these sort of um, Democrats who she sees as, again, kind of ungodly or having turned away from God. That's part and parcel of the rhetoric that arguably is undergirded versions of the religious right for decades, but has certainly been resurgent in Christian nationalist circles in the last few years. Well, actually, why don't we um, get into uh, the connections between uh, the Patriot Front and Christian nationalism? Because one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, as they push this Christian nationalism, who's in and who's out? And obviously, <laughs> the queer community is not in. So, yeah, th tell us about that. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think one of the fascinating things about Christian nationalism is that there are many Christian nationalisms. Right. Yeah. And I think that that's important to understand because you will see it expressed in different ways. So, for instance, um, 
the Andrew Torba, the head of Gab, you know, this alternative social media website that is often known as a haven for extremists. Um, he wrote a whole book on Christian nationalism. He has also been widely condemned for sharing anti-Semitic messages. Um, other versions of Christian nationalism are actually in, uh, intense um, about um, for not only their support for Israel, but for also the Jewish people. Actually, there's a specific form of Christian separatism that kind of laid the groundwork in North Idaho, known as the American Redoubt, that I can discuss. Um, it was this uh, survivalist blogger um, named James Wesley Rawls, who wrote a um, blog post in 2011, where he called on his fellow um, you know, survivalists and like-minded people to move to this area that he referred to as the American Redoubt, which was Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, and the eastern sections of Washington and Oregon. And he was explicit by saying that it was a Christian um, community that he wanted to set up, and he referred to it as a form of religious separatism. He made an exception, however, saying that um, Messianic Jews and Orthodox Jews were were also uh, acceptable in the American Redoubt because he saw them as culturally and theologically similar enough to conservative Christians that he wanted to kind of mean the main voice in that space. But I, I give that context North Idaho to also acknowledge there are forms of Christian nationalism, for instance, trumpeted by Nick Fuentes, the head of America First, who are, his is explicitly Catholic. He is called for Catholic Taliban rule of the United States. And I should note Fuentes also identifies as a Christian nationalist. And then um, there are others that are, you know, specifically more Protestant. Um, one of the pastors I spoke to in Idaho referred to a kind of a pan-Protestant project when he was describing his vision for Christian nationalism. But to your original point, and I think this is really important, when it comes to politics, the, the, the enemies of a lot of these Christian nationalists, as they articulate it, are specifically LGBTQ people, particularly LGBTQ activists. Um, and that seems to be the, um, some of the thrust of their energy is opposing LGBTQ rights campaigns most recently. Um, as well as before that, um, very virulent opposition to uh, um, pandemic restrictions and you know lockdown measures, and in some instances, just intense anti-vaccine and anti-mask sentiment. So, all of these things kind of coalesce together when it when it comes to showing up for political projects, even if they might have different you know specific theological visions for what the country should look like christian nationalisms become christian nationalism when it comes to showing up on either election day or to participate in a rally or a political event yeah it's it's it, it's really fascinating um and and you you mentioned that um in your uh article about how there are, there, are, there are some jews orthodox jews and messianic jews who could be in but apparently the rest of the Jews would be out and the LGBTQ community would be out. And I suspect it's kind of a pretty, you know, especially when you mentioned Nick Fuentes being part of it, it's probably not a very diverse kind of crowd. It, 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 who, <laughs> who is in and what beliefs do you have to have to be when they say they want, you know, a, a Christian nation like what are what are the specifics like how adherent to to what the do we go back to the Ten Commandments or is it some version of that? 
So this, this is a good question, and I, I, I promise I'm not avoiding it when I tell you that it, it depends. So for yeah, instance, no, that's, that's cool, that's cool. Um, um, a, a big um, voice, an emerging voice in Christian nationalism is actually a pastor in technically the northern tip of central Idaho, the southern tip of north Idaho, um, a pastor by the name of Doug Wilson, who I got to speak with when I was out there. He has this church called Christ Church in Moscow, Idaho. It's actually a very blue town. Um, but his church is very conservative. And he's actually been there for decades and has been controversial for decades. But he recently kind of became a part of this Christian nationalism discourse. And I kind of ask him, I should note, he, when when Andrew Torba wrote that book about Christian nationalism last year, he co-wrote it with another person called Andrew um, Isker, who actually uh, is a graduate of the ministry program at um, one of Wilson's schools. And Wilson actually blurbed that book. Um, and then he he also his own publishing house published a book last year on Christian nationalism called The Case for Christian Nationalism. So I give that context to say, you know, when I was talking to him about, you know, who's in who's what, what, what would his vision for a Christian nation look like? You know, he t- described it as, you know, you would you may have some um, freedoms to, to think whatever you want, but, you know, he would bar certain people from holding office. And when I ask him, you know, what about Christians who actually disagree with your position on he opposes same sex marriage, he opposes abortion. Um, and I should note that that opposition to same sex marriage and abortion, m- making it legal, um, illegal in all or most cases is actually not a majority opinion of most major Christian groups in the United States. That's right. Um, yeah. And, and so I asked him, well, what about all these other Christians? Where would they sit in your society? And he, he argued that they would be barred from um, holding office in his vision for a Christian America. Right. And it, it but it really does kind of seem like when you get into the you know nitty gritty with some of these, um, the, 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 the more theological voices in Christian nationalism about who's in and who's out, they might have some more specific visions. In practice, however, what you often hear, for instance, when you hear um, allusions to Christian nationalism, when you're watching people show up um, to push back against you know school boards or local town councils, which has happened in and around um, North Idaho as well, you know, it's, it's usually less of a specific theology and more of a collective um, pushback against what they deem to be uh, outside of their purview, right? So there was this, again, this agreement that among most Christian nationalists or folks who might appeal to Christian nationalism, that COVID restrictions were somehow outside of that purview, that Democrats in general were somehow outside of this society that they wanted to build. And that, um, you know, uh, uh, inclusion of um, transgender individuals and and, uh, LGBTQ activists was simply not on the table. Um, and, And then for a while, it was opposition to critical race theory. You know, you can go down the list here. It's more often defined by who they are against than who they who they are for right um and that's how it's most you know politically impactful as well it's really just so fascinating so frightening i read i literally was like yikes as i was reading this one thing okay now this is going to sound kind of catty of me but you know whatever (laughs) um you know they they're, they're they're dogmatic christians and their speaker at this event who's selling t-shirts about Christian white uh, Christian nationalism recently got divorced. So I, and I don't care if someone gets divorced, but they clearly care about my life. They'd like to end my marriage equality rights. <laughs> but it's kind of like it's it's Christian nationalism for the rest of us, for the rest of you. But whatever 
we do doesn't really matter. I, I don't know. I just kind of find that hypocrisy because if you're truly that Christian, divorce is just such an anathema to them, right? Well, this is uh, one of the fascinating elements of modern Christian nationalism in particular. Um, so what, one of the other great heroes um, in the modern era of Christian nationalism was, of course, Donald Trump, who right. also, yeah. um, in addition to divorces, has any number of other things that would have been deemed untoward in um, past iterations of the religious right. You know, um, I think there was a poll and someone can fact check me in the specific dates here um, that public religion research institute put out that i think said a lot about this this um flip particularly within white evangelicalism around trump where in 2011 um they were asked if the character of a candidate counts and it was something like uh, around 70 percent said absolutely when they asked him again in 2015 2016 that the number reversed just in that time period where it was only like 30 percent that said yes the character of a candidate counts and that was indicative of this movement that we saw throughout the trump era where um, even the more, you know, old school religious right actors, the ones that that did um, end up supporting Trump, they would often kind of talk about him as this sort of vehicle for their ideas. Right. So that he doesn't necessarily need to be perfect so long as he it, you know fights for the causes and the ideas that they want to see made manifest. Right. Um, so it's less about the individual behavior of the actor so much as it is like the, as long as they're fighting for the things that they want and they see that as you know being an instrument of god in that instance that was particularly around trump they would make theological comparisons to king cyrus or king david these imperfect figures in the bible that nonetheless you know were were you know uh, instruments of the divine um and they compared trump to being something similar so the that precedent has already been set in the modern yeah. era so yeah. uh, marjorie taylor green isn't in some ways is 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 you know not in the um, same category as as trump with regards to how um how quickly um evangelicals in particular had to switch the um the way that they uh assigned candidates and politicians when it came to you know theological purity so i think that's that's just like part and parcel of this movement at this point instrument of the divine that's definitely what i think of when i think of donald trump Jack Jenkins, wow, this is terrific reporting. You always do terrific reporting. Um, on Twitter, at Jack M. Jenkins. People can find you at religiousnews.com. Thank you so much for sharing this, scaring the shit out of us in many ways, but it's an important conversation, and I think we need to know what's going on. I really appreciate the work you do, and I really appreciate you joining us tonight. Thanks so much, and thank you so much for having me. I was glad to do it. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. 
Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender. NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back. Okay, so the timing on this is perfect that it's Thursday night and Dr. Jason Nichols is appearing and you all know him, award-winning full-time senior lecturer in the African-American Studies Department at the University of Maryland in College Park, featured in so many media publications and particularly writes a column at Newsweek. And this week, you had some thoughts on the national divorce that Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene is calling for. First, welcome back to the show. And uh, let's dig into it. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's I mean, the whole idea is pretty absurd. Um, But we have to recognize and I was just looking a second ago and listening to to your conversation with, you know, some other people earlier. And I was looking at J.D. Vance just to kind of broaden this whole thing. And you talking about Christian nationalism and white nationalism and J.D. Vance talking about uh, what happened in East Palestine and saying, these are our people. And, you know, I, I can understand if you were just talking about Ohioans because he's from Ohio. But that's not really what he was referring to, because when he said our, he was referring to, you know, Trump and Tucker Carlson. Now, you could say maybe he's talking about Trump voters, but then you have to understand that you know, Tucker's never run for any office. You know what I mean? So who is he referring to? And then you have to look at, you know, this idea, you know, maybe he's talking about rural people. Tucker's from La Jolla, California. Yeah. And Trump is from New York City, you know, from Queens. Yeah, right. So, it, you know, it's not even rural people. It's clear the message that he's sending. It's the same kind of message that Marjorie Taylor Greene is trying to send here with this uh, let's do a national divorce. I mean, it, it, when you peel the layers back, it's pretty clear. But of course, when you look at that, I mean, it would not work out well for the red states. The blue states support red states. You know, that that's just kind of how it works when it talks to when we talk about the amount of tax revenue that you produce for the federal government versus the amount that you get back. And, and there's a, uh, you know, for every dollar that someone from Connecticut puts in, they get 89 cents back from the federal government and benefits. But when you go into states like West Virginia or Kentucky, it's, you know, $2.80. They get back for every dollar, uh, you know, of taxes that they pay per citizen. So red states are really supported by blue states. When you look at how well they're managed, uh, blue states are managed better. They have, you know, while we always hear a lot of these, uh, you know, right wing pundits and, and what have you talk about, well, violence and Chicago and all of this and Los Angeles and New York, we hear about that. But the the murder rate in in states that voted for trump was 40 percent higher than in states that voted for biden in 2020. 
So again, when you look at all of these measures, it wouldn't work out well for red states. And, and then, of course, the federal government and all of its infrastructure is based in Washington, D.C. It doesn't get any bluer than that. So you're going to have to find a new capital. It just makes absolutely no sense. But the most important thing is that I don't hear people in Connecticut or New York or Massachusetts complaining about any of this because they recognize we're the United States of America right. and we want to be united. You know, this idea of, of a national divorce was thought of before in Marjorie Taylor Greene. It was tried before. And luckily, those seditious traitors failed. Now, this seditious traitor is trying to revamp this idea. And let's just admit that it's neo-Confederate thinking. Um, it's ridiculous. It needs to be called out, and it should be called out by modern Republicans. But they're kind of going along with it um, because they're afraid of not even, I'm not even sure, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm, I, I'm not even sure it's the majority of, of Republican voters that they're afraid of. You know, I think they're afraid of the loud people on the internet, you know, which is really sad. But that's where we are. That's where, you know, the Kevin McCarthy's of the world are. And they're giving up, you know, all their power to, to internet trolls, because that's what Marjorie Taylor Greene is. She's, you know, the type of person who runs after, you know, the Parkland kids or, yep. you know, carries a white balloon or, you know, she's an internet troll and an anti-Semite and, and, you know, hobnobs with, with white nationalists. And by the way, she wouldn't necessarily, if there was a national, if there were a national divorce, uh, I'm not sure where she would go because Georgia is kind of up in the air, uh, <laughs> whether that counts as a red state or a blue state. I'm not even sure anymore. Um, we've seen <laughs> Raphael Warnock essentially win four, uh, four elections there in the last four years between elections and runoffs. So I think, uh, you know, all of this is absurd and we need to start calling it out and, and talking about, you know, the patriotic thing. And this is something I, I got to say, Joe, that I think Democrats do so poorly. And I have to criticize Democrats here. How do we let people like that co-opt the American flag and co-opt patriotism when they're clearly seditious and anti-American? We, we can't allow that anymore. You know, we can't let their BS, you know, and white nationalism, you know, take over the idea of what it means to be a patriotic American. I, I, I could not agree with you more. And I look, first of all, everything you said, thank you. You know, I have so many thoughts. One thing I want to say, I was reading your column and I was like, and I, when I was just talking to Jack Jenkins, we were talking about Christian nationalism and how Marjorie Taylor Greene appeared at a big rally up in North Idaho to spew that. And I was like, you know, she's just gone through a divorce. And it's interesting how the rules don't apply, you know, like for, to Trump, the, the Christian nationalist, you want you to be pure and wholesome and everything, but unless you're one of their leaders. But she just went through a divorce, so she must have some idea of what a divorce goes through. It's not easy. And, you know, I hope that if she thinks there's going to be divorce between red states and blue states, we're not paying alimony. We are not <laughs> paying alimony. That's not how it's going to work. Before I uh, let you go, and 
I did want to, you know, mark that one year ago, tonight, right around this time, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. And mm. there's a lot going on with that. I just wanted to get, just kind of get your thoughts on this one year anniversary and what are some of the things you're watching as we enter the second year of this war? Well, I, I think my first thought is who to thunk it? Like, you know, this was supposed to be 10 days, you know, and the Ukrainians have put up an incredible fight for their sovereignty. And the, the bravery of the Ukrainian people is laudable. You know, I know that there's all kinds of debate and people going back and forth and whether Ukraine was a perfect democracy. And I'm like, have you seen our politics recently? Like, <laughs> there aren't a whole lot of perfect democracies in the world. But the Ukrainians, even with the American support, they're the ones that had to fight these battles. And they've they've done an excellent job where they've literally destroyed half of the Russian capability to the point where Vladimir Putin is turning to mercenaries like the Wagner Group. But I will say that just predicting the future of this, I think there's going to be a major spring offensive. I don't think that Vladimir Putin's going to use nukes, but I think there's going to be a major spring offensive, uh, including mercenaries. It's going to be a, a difficult time, and this is why President Biden's uh, visit to Ukraine was so incredibly important. And, you know, I think in any other time period, he would have gotten a whole lot more positive press for the bravery that he showed and the strength that he showed. I think for all of the talk about Biden's frailty, he's too old, uh, the guy has been an incredibly strong leader recently. And, and I think we need to give him credit. You know, I always say this to John. I mean, listen, I was not a Biden guy at all. But you have to give him credit for the for the things that he's done, the things that he's accomplished, the legislative accomplishments, and certainly taking leadership internationally um, should be something that he is credited for. I mean, he has shown strong leadership on Ukraine. And he has re basically re-strengthened NATO to the point where all these other nations are begging to get into NATO. Yep. Not only because of the threat of of Vladimir Putin, which is a major threat, but also because of, of the the unification and the strengthening that is that's happened under the leadership of Joe Biden. The other thing that I'll say is it is you know worrisome that if the Chinese continue to support uh, the Russians, I think China is going to come out with their plan to kind of end this thing, which I don't think Zelensky's going to go for. It's going to be something that makes it seem like this was uh, a two-sided event when we know that the, the aggression and provocation came all the way from one side here. And I think, you know, if, if they start supporting Russia militarily, which I don't think they're going to do, I think President Xi is a lot smarter than that. I think he's smart like a fox and he's not going to uh, support the Russians in that way. But it's, you know, we also as Americans have to be a little concerned about that. Like that is yeah. worst case scenario. So I'm encouraged by what I've seen thus far. Uh, it, it's a it's a 
a good sign for democracy, a good sign for sovereignty. But Russia's offensive can mean things for our economy. If it gets really bad and really bloody out there, of course, we know a lot of things that we need come out of that region. You know, everybody talks about the cost of eggs. And if there's no grain to feed the chickens, then cost, you know, costs are going to go up. Uh, there's going to be a, I think there are going to be a lot of lives lost. But I still think we have to give Joe Biden credit for his leadership. I think he's done an incredible job. Yeah, I, I will agree with that. I same position you. I wasn't a Biden supporter in the beginning. And um, I, I have to tell you, the State of the Union was very impressive. And then yeah. this uh, this um, visit to Kiev. And, you know, I think about it, Jason, I, I I'm exhausted if I fly across the country. He flew halfway <laughs> around the world, took a 10 hour train ride. It was still like uh, raring to go having important meetings and, you know, so for all that frailty, it um, he's got a spine of steel. Always exciting for me when I get to guest host for John and, and talk to people who I love listening to when he's talking to them. And certainly you are one of those people. Dr. Jason Nichols on Twitter. Thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us tonight. It was really fun. Thank you, Joe. Anytime, brother. All right. It's good to talk to you. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in a few minutes and we'll get on the phones. Good evening and welcome back. This is the third hour of the show and I am really excited right now. I get excited by all of our guests and by all of our callers. I really love doing this, but I'm particularly excited to have on my friend, Jordan Zakarin, a total badass. If you follow Jordan on Twitter, you learn so much. He is a reporter and producer for More Perfect Union. He runs a terrific newsletter called Progress Report, and I always enjoy spending time talking to him. Welcome back, Jordan. Hey, Jordan, how's it going? You know, uh, it's going okay. It's going okay. Um, you know, it feels like we're in a real it, it, mix of two countries right now, doesn't it? And, and you know what? I, I, I was thinking that exact thing that I wanted to talk about. That um, you know, I was just talking to uh, Dr. Nichols about the MTG divorce, and you know, he was pointing out mm. in his column that red states really rely on blue state money. And I said, yeah, if they want a divorce. There's no alimony, but um, <laughs> one of the things in that's happening is we are seeing good things happen in blue states. And it, it's it's something we need to see. Michigan's a good example. Let's talk about Michigan, for example, mm-hmm. for, for, for one, because I think one of the most significant things they're going to do is repeal right to work. Yes. Yeah, it is. It, it was pretty remarkable. You saw in Michigan, obviously, you got like so many other states got gerrymandered after the 2010 election. Democrats are sleeping on state legislatures. And, uh, you know, it, it was bad for a long time. Thankfully, they, they passed the amendment to create uh, independent legislatures and are you said, uh, redistricting committees. And all of a sudden, look, uh, fair districts, Democrats won. Uh, it helped that, you know, in, Repu- in Michigan, Republicans were trying to kidnap the governor, stuff like running for governor. So that helped. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, they have a they have a small majority now. And, you know, I, I've been doing stories on it. And just we just had a story this week about the right to work. And they really want to take advantage of this is the first time actually 40 years that Democrats have had full control of the Michigan government. 
and then you have the Supreme Court as well. So they are they are going full steam to a lot of stuff right now, and um, right to work ending that would be just w- w- real cherry on top. Yeah, it's it's really important. Um, it's a union state. I mean, unions built that state. The the UAW was such an integral part of it. And Republicans, when they had control, they passed right to work, which is an anti-worker piece of legislation. And uh, actually, uh, I, you know, I do the show State of the States. And this weekend, we're talking about Michigan. Um, I talked to Susan Demas from Michigan Advance and um, nice. State Representative Carol Glanville. And one thing they both mentioned it really resonated deeply with the legislature and people involved in government is the shooting at Michigan State University. Mm-hmm. And they're going to pass, they are going to pass some uh, gun safety laws this year in Michigan. And that's going to be really significant too. Yeah, you know, and they're going to do the same thing in Colorado. You know, it's, they're, they're trying to tighten up as much as possible, uh, you know, given the circumstances with the Supreme Court. And yeah, Michigan. You know, they already did some like big tax breaks for working people. They are go- they got rid of the the you know uh, basically they tried to screw up the pensions for for unions ten years ago, and they they got rid of that. Um, and so they're going full steam ahead with legislation on those things. And it, it get, bring back to what you said about Marjorie Taylor Greene, her comment. Obviously, like it just rooted in white supremacy. You know, she just want people to if they move to the south to vote or you know, for five years. Like right. she's she's out of her mind. But you do get the sense that it's hard to like imagine these two blue states and red states and, and there's some states that go back and forth you see arizona georgia you know there's not it's not solely uh blue and red solidly but it's hard to imagine them coexisting for all that much longer because the sheer hatred that there is coming from you know the right uh towards you know the center and the center left and then the amount of you know, the number of laws and things that we have to live under because of a conservative supreme court certainly not suggesting a civil war or a divorce but it is interesting to see like how that will continue to coexist because i don't know how long that's possible well, and I think what's going to happen, what's, what has to happen, too, is, you know, I think one of the things in this East Palestine is a good example of where we are in America. You know, Republicans have, you know, I, I, you know, I've been talking about it tonight. If you watch their hearings, especially the House Judiciary Committee or oversight Everything is very much about white supremacy. They invoke the great replacement theory. They they are very clear about that. They have a vision of America that is a, is basically white, Christian, straight, rich, mostly men. There are some women involved. Boring, man. It's boring. I'm, I'm, a, yeah. I'm a white man and I'm a straight man. It's boring. <laughs> right. You know, I, I do think a lot of straight people can be boring. I love a lot of them. I have a lot of friends who are straight. <laughs> but I mean, but no, this, no diversity there. Like, come on. I know there's no diversity. And but that's the vision they have. And and, they, and what they do is they try to drive wedges and they you know that you've seen it in East Palestine. They're like, you know, you got Tucker Carlson and Trump going out there and saying, oh, we care about you. We care about you. God damn you. Donald Trump going out there saying we care about you when what's the reality? He's the one that weakened the regulations. Republicans have made the lives of working people of all colors just miserable. And the only thing they've got going is is trying to drive the wedges and make make them hate other people. It's just so that's that's their whole strategy. They've got nothing else. Yeah, you see me sort of like going on about Ron DeSantis. I've been kind of. I think since he got elected, I've been obsessed with him being like the next big danger. Um, and so it's not something I'm, I'm happy to be right about. But 
you know, the amount of the number of things, whether it's attacking the media now, or you're just basically taking over control of schools and basically allowing you know, no, I think gen, there's no gender studies allowed in the Ron DeSantis version of the Florida education uh, system, and uh, sorry, higher education system. Like it's it's certainly all culture war. And I hate calling it culture war because it almost reduces it. You know, there's people's identities and people's lives, you know, and people's health, and you know. Uh, not allowing a, a kid to be who they are is not just culture, it's torture. But, you know, it is that sort of stuff because at the same time, Ron DeSantis is giving away five, six, seven billion dollars to insurance companies, big corporations in Florida, and about to pass a law that uh, forever preempts and disallows local rent control. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that they're doing while, you know, the legislature is working on that while he's working on attacking the press and attacking kids. Um, so, you, so you're right, it very much is like a but it's very much like a distraction. But also, I think he just—I think a lot of these people don't like, uh, you know, like you said, people who aren't white Christian straight men. So it's kind of a you know bonus to them. They're not just doing it. For, I think there was a time where Republicans do it performatively. Now I think they're just all in on it uh, personally. But you mentioned East Palestine. It, you know, the thing is about Donald Trump going to McDonald's and giving Mount MAGA hats. The thing is that Democrats should have known he was going to do that. You know, yeah. it, that's the thing. It's. Pete Buttigieg, who was given this golden platform to be the, the secretary of uh, transportation, more money than ever being spent on infrastructure. He's had fumble after fumble because he's not connected. You know, whether it was the summer with the airlines, whether it was, you know, in terms of trying to get Norfolk Southern to, uh, the, they were the company that obviously had the derailment to, you know, be responsible and clean up and give people anything at all. There has been very little response uh, until there needs to be. You know, it was, it was funny. Like Pete Buttigieg that was out there today with his hard head on, and um, you know, a week too late, obviously. And that gave Republicans a talking point. And it's cynical and it's horrible. And Republicans don't mean any of it. But they are better at the theatrics. And you know, if you're living in East Palestine, like, and someone comes first, you might think that they care more. You know, if someone's giving you food and water, um, even if they are, <laughs> even when their name is on the water bottle, and it's, it's a cynical ploy. Yeah, you might think that they are they are there for you. And to be honest, you know, Democrats also were very big on deregulation, even under Obama when it comes to these sorts of things. So I think Democrats have been a lot better the last bunch of years. We really pushed them to be more in tune with working people. But there's still that vestigial, like, inability to fully connect. And someone like Pete Buttigieg, you know, he's uh, he's a corporate guy at heart. And I think that when you're a corporate consultant for McKinsey, you uh, think about how do you cut losses more so much than, like, who's this impacting? Not, not to say he's a, he's a cold person, but... I think it's still an attitudinal shift, but you're right. It's very, uh, very much Democrats do much more than Republicans, at least for uh, working people. Right. And and it's interesting. I, I, I felt like at the State of the Union, watching Biden was the first time in a long time I felt like we had an elected official who actually stood up there and said, government can do things for you and it should do good things for you because you are mm-hmm. the government. And I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, and but 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 it it was important and i feel like that's what is happening in michigan right now you know they're like you working people you actually get screwed on your pensions you've gotten screwed um with right to work we're going to help you and and that 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 you, you haven't felt that from democrats there was there was the whole neoliberal phase with democrats and and you know and yeah. I, I think we, i hope we're past it i mean i know there are still groups like third way and others that still long for those days um but it, it you know we we've got to get past it and you've got to do things for people like they they notice you know it takes them a while sometimes but <laughs> they notice and you know it, and, and it's something you wrote about too and uh and i think this is something 
that you know we all need to talk about and it's something you and your colleagues at more perfect union talk about all the time is just about this corporate power it, you know mm-hmm. I, I quoted our, our friend john russell when, when the show started tonight I, had, I spoke with john russell who writes a newsletter called the hauler he's terrific i had him yep. on mike signorelli's show last week and he said that what we're learning from this is it brings into focus just how captured our whole system is by huge companies with more money than god that face no accountability and that's the way it's been for the past 40 plus years and it's got to goddamn change yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where you see Norfolk Southern, they were going to give a thousand dollars to everyone with the zip code. That's, I mean, it's nothing that people are going to get poisoned and living on this mushroom cloud. Uh, but there was nothing to force them to do it. You know, even this even this past fall when they made the railroad workers sign that kind of crappy deal with no time off, uh, you know, with no sick days. A few months later, look what happened. You know, and I think that yeah. there's an element of like, wow, we really got caught. Um, I, I think the Biden administration got some blowback for that, and I think also like. Seeing this derailment, it shows. And I think that, you know, it's interesting because these sorts of things, conservatives have been on for a very, very, very long time. They have built movements to end regulation across many, many years, um, take over state governments and do all those things. And just now, like just now, Democrats and, and people like who are not just policy wonks are starting to think about the mechanics of rules, you know, when it comes to what can the DOT do? What can like the, the great example is the uh, antitrust, right? And, and Department of Justice, like they're doing great things. And there's some, these things you can do, uh, you don't have to pass things through Congress, but you can do it instead of precedent. And it makes a big, big difference. And I think that we're starting to get that. And I think that we're seeing like the DOJ go after these monopolies. I think that it's been great to see Biden, you know, be very, very feisty when it comes to different uh, union busters. I think that the NLRB has been great and in trying to uh, end that. But ultimately, you know, like what it's going to be. Yeah, a couple million dollar fine for Norfolk Southern, and you know Starbucks is gonna have to pay like a couple, a little bit of back pay for a bunch of workers. Um, until like laws change, it's these. It has been rigged for corporations to flourish for the next however many years. Uh, obviously, like we need to get a trifecta and then maybe change the Supreme Court. But you're right. It, I think people are realizing it at least. You know, I think that that is very much clear because there was used to be a point where like we worship people in big business, right? There was a uh, you know like from Jack Welch on to like the, the, the Silicon Valley guys. But I think it turned out that all of them are goons, Elon, Elon Musk especially. So yeah. I think that they've done a good job unmasking themselves and uh, people you know, are, are sick of it. I, I think so. And, and I feel like, you know, giving workers a voice is just so important. And, and you just realize how weak it, it, this train uh, derailment, as John said, it just shows you how much corporate power has and, you know, and how they've been able to fight regulations. And, you know, I'll give Buttigieg credit. Um, he got attacked by Marco Rubio and he and he said, last time I heard from you, you were asking for more train deregulations. Who the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, exactly. But, you know, and that's what <laughs> Buttigieg is good at, that kind of stuff. But. You know, a, a couple of years ago, I, I was thinking about the train derailment and hearing about the union and how weak the rules are made me think about this book I read a couple of years ago by Rachel Slade called Into the Raging Sea. It's about the Merchant Marines. It was about a, a ship that sank in a hurricane. And it's it's a it's a tragic story. But the thing about it was it was a story about the sinking of the ship, but it was really about an industry that is immune, that has really walked all over its union, that has decreased regulation. And, you know, it's not an anomaly. It's the story of what's happened to workers around the country. And that's that's something that you and your colleagues 
at um, or Perfect Union point out all the time. And we are at a point now, um, and, and, and DeSantis is a good example of it. Let's go back to DeSantis, because mm-hmm. I saw Thomas, Thomas, Ken- Thomas Kennedy today had tweeted that, you know, DeSantis is going to do this big anti-immigrant bill, repeal in-state tuition for undocumented students, which his lieutenant governor was a sponsor of that legislation when she was in the legislature, by the way. And he's going to make it a third degree felony to harbor or transport undocumented people within Florida. And okay. meanwhile, who is rebuilding Florida right now and who is dealing with who's taking care of all the agriculture in that state? Immigrants, probably undocumented. Yeah. Right. Right. He knows it. He knows. I mean, that's the thing is he. he, Yeah. The interesting thing about Ron DeSantis is that. He's been running for president forever, and he's willing to take on business in like the worst ways possible. Um, and so, but they continue to give money to his campaign because he gives them money in tax breaks. You know, he's going to make mis- things visible and more difficult for them when it comes to immigrants. But they'll, he'll also give them a billion dollars in tax breaks. So, you know, what do they care? Yeah, and 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 you know, I can assure you, not one of the businesses in Florida the big businesses that are employing undocumented workers, the construction companies and others who are funding Ron DeSantis are ever going to get found guilty of a third degree felony. And if he really wants to find someone who's abused undocumented workers, he should go to Mar-a-Lago because that clown that lives there has done it for decades. But the other thing is, Jordan, and, and, and the flip side of this is, you know, every business person in the country will admit we need more immigrants. They all know it. They all admit it. Some of them write about it. Some of them will say it. <laughs> it's not happening. So what what instead are state legislatures doing? Some of them. Child labor. Uh, well, instead Jesus of Christ, instead of yeah, <laughs> yeah, instead of uh, going to the immigrants, then you know if we can't get uh, if it's difficult for us, and you know our our uh, people that we love to people who love to give us tax breaks say no, we'll just go to kids. Yeah, kids, and we're not making this up. Talk about talk a little bit about that because I know it's something you've been working on. Yeah, you know it's it's one of those things where you start to get sometimes you don't want to get numb to it, and it's so outrageous, right? This country. Like outlawed child labor, except in some you know small exceptions, like teens having like a job at ice cream parlor or whatever. Like a hundred years ago, and we're looking at we're looking at just going back a hundred years on these sorts of things. There's you know there's just packs and and right wing organizations that have lobbied that for years and years and years. Like the you know National Federation of Independent Business, they pretend to be in you know the organization for small business, much the way the Chamber of Commerce does. And they've been pushing for laws for years, and you know got bills in Wisconsin, Ohio, New Jersey. To you know, slowly you know, change you know, like yeah, like the people can kids can work a little bit later. They can do this. They can do that. Just slowly move the goalposts further and further. I guess to the right, um, and further and further back. I'm not sure how, where they're moving the goalposts, but just slowly eroding these laws until people get used to it. You know, Republicans are working on one now in Iowa that allows teenagers as young as 14 to work in freezers and meat coolers, and then you know, there's a lot of prohibited jobs still kids still can't do until till they're 18 mining and working in like meat slaughterhouses except people can, as young as 14 can work in them if they're involved in some kind of school-based education program which is like nonsense obviously and um not only employers will be shielded for li- from liability for injuries uh for kids who get hurt on the job so you know if you get like you know arm amputated it's uh sorry it's it was your internship kid uh tough luck and so you know it's already advanced through a committee and so it's preposterous but there's so many outrages now that I don't even think people notice, right? These things just kind of rush over you, you know? And so 
uh, with so many bad things going on. It's kind of like the Trump principle and now doing it like in 30 different states that I think people are just exhausted. And it's, you know, they, there's no there's no shame, I guess. There's no outrage. There's no there's no consequences for voting for child labor. You know, you would think that that would be, you know, kind of a bipartisan thing. Don't make kids work. We've got to protect the children, like Ron DeSantis says. But no, that's not they don't they don't care. Um, and, you know, now there's a news story about it. Yada, yada. All right. Well, we got to move on to the next thing. And there's no sustained pressure to stop. And if there is, they don't care because they're seizure gerrymandered. So we end up with these horrible rules basically built by Republicans who've been funded by corporations who have these gerrymanders so they can make kids work in meat lockers and mines. In the year 2023 in the United States of America. But it's all true. And, and instead, you know what, they, the other thing they're doing in Iowa, I mean, I mean, I, I think Kim Reynolds is trying to out DeSantis DeSantis. She might she, she probably wants to be yeah. a VP candidate or something. They have legislation. Ty Rushing from Iowa Starting Line wrote about this a couple weeks ago, but there was actually a hearing today, a Senate subcommittee, considering the governor's bill, education bill, which has the don't say gay provisions, of course, but it also has mm-hmm. language about preventing HIV and HPV education. Like, yeah. So it's... if you can't kill them in <laughs> on the farms or in the factories, kill them by getting them diseases. You can't make this shit up. Well, you know what is interesting is, I mean, I certainly don't live in Iowa. I'm not a Republican. I don't belong to like a Christian conservative organization, but I don't know how many people at this point are complaining about, you know, HIV uh, prevention in, in sex ed. You know, like obviously like, I remember back to like the Bush era where you know, they had a sex ed and just had this rage about it, but there's so many things that they're finding that, you know, they're, they're like scouring for ways to be yeah. evil and be terrible just to prove that they can do it. And because they want to do it, you, can, you don't do these things just because. And there's a whole new like generation of people who since 2010 have run for the far right and have won um, and, and they've kind of moved to the center. And again, because they're Republicans, because they're one of two major parties, they have to be treated like they are respectable and legitimate. Whereas these people are horrible and you know, I think illegitimate as I'm not saying they didn't win their elections, but, you know, we have one party that's this creeping party of fascism that basically wants to make like the way people are illegal. You know, I think like we're still not at this point in this country, unfortunately, where we can recognize fascism because we, we want to don't not believe that it, it can happen here. Oh, they were elected. So it's, it's not fascism exactly. But, you know, you, you make like a I don't I don't care like who you are, like if a kid is trans, like. You're not going to torture them and not allow them to be trans, or you're not going to allow gay people to live out in the open, you know, in schools or or elsewhere, or like have their you know parades, these festivals, like, and yet they're doing it, and it it, it disturbs me that they're treated treated as like one-off things and or like trend pieces instead of like here's a you know here's a governor, here's a you know senator that is actually ruining people's lives and cracking down on their very existence. Of course, I think you see what happens is the New York Times, they got, you know, in a huff over people uh, accusing them of being, you know, transphobic. And so there you go. They, they, they cannot, they see this as like a journalistic issue as a debate instead of people's existence. And when you see it as a debate, you're never going to like, you're never going to stop fascism or stop people from being persecuted. It's, it's so true. What, what the New York Times is doing is appalling. And it's kind of like uh, Dan Frumkin has written about it. He actually just wrote about it. And it's like it's the it's a, it's kind of like a conflict between I'm paraphrasing, but between the elite and the afflicted, you know, the people who are very well off and not having to worry about things, think that they can just do journalism. And, and anyone who writes about 
issues in a different way from them as an activist. And that's not what it is. What they're doing is being activists for the status quo and being activists for an anti-trans community. I just was talking to one of our callers, Kat, down in Texas, who was talking about, you know, how how hard it is and how hard it can be to be part of uh, the LGBTQ community. And when you layer on, when you layer on the attacks from elected officials and they rationalize it, I mean, you know, it's not for nothing that there was the reporting from um, Colorado Springs is that the 22-year-old shooter out there um, ran a neo-Nazi website and used gay and racial slurs. You know, like, of course, of course they did. And that's that, that, and when you see elected officials who are, you know, condoning it, it sends a real message. And when you see the New York Times pile on, and the New York Times treats the trans issue like it is one of the most pressing issues in America. It's pressing for a small minority, a, a small group of people and their families. But the New York Times has turned into this national thing, uh, echoing what Republicans are doing. It's so maddening. Yeah, you think like we just had a pandemic that's killed like almost 2 million people and we are in the, there's war going on in Europe and, you know, there's uh, children being forced to be in labor, uh, do labor because uh, the Chamber of Commerce invented the uh, worker, uh, worker shortage. Uh, this is sure that the, the planet is melting down. You know, this, this year, no, I mean, Colorado and, and especially like Nevada and Arizona are going to have no water in the next five years. And, you know, not things to say, I don't want to diminish it because this is what people are going through and it's their lives. But the idea that this needs to be at the top of the agenda um, is the fact that the New York Times is covering it like that puts it at the top of the agenda. It does the favor for Republicans. Yep. If, if they find examples, any sort of counterexample, then they can blow that up. There's people that say they detransitioned and become the stars on the right, right? And like, who knows what the actual story is? Um, you know, there's gays for groomers, but that was just really a right-wing organization that has, has been behind a lot of different right-wing attacks uh, started by definitely a not gay person. Um, and so, but by considering these people legitimate, by you remember, even think about Chris Rufo, right? Who's the uh, the big homophobe, transphobe, racist that Ron DeSantis brought in to run New College, which in Florida, which should have been like a national outrage. Right, they're bringing in this guy who was just openly hateful and just a terrible, terrible person. They're bringing him in, and he's running the schools. And like, he got a, like a glossy uh, piece of the New York Times magazine, or maybe the Sunday New York Times, talking about how he was stirring the debate. Right, like, I mean, it's not an exact quote, but he got these like photos, these pensive photos down by the river where he lives. And yeah. by legitimizing these people, they're, you're saying these voices are should be heard, and that they have something to say that's worthwhile. And you know. What if they just made this, I don't know, I'm Jewish, what if they made this Jews? I mean, they are making the Jews in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, by talking about yeah. classical education, that's you know, banning Jews. But I don't know why they, they think that, oh, it's because it's you know, LGBTQ people, it's uh, you know, not as legitimate. You know, as if, like, maybe because you're not, you, you, you can't tell by someone's skin color, you know? But, like, you know, going after religion is, not, is, is, is there's no difference there, right? So it's it's upsetting to me, and it's outrageous to me, and it's, you know, we're going to look back on this time in history, should we get it out of it? And you're like, who stood up and who said what? And, you know, you look at, like, newspapers from the Weimar Republic, and it's a lot like what the New York Times is doing now. Yep, it's exactly right. And, and you know, uh, I had dinner last night with uh, my friend Kathleen Friedel, who is a political historian. She's been on this show many times, t- different shows on SiriusXM Progress. And she wrote a piece in 2016, in March of 2016, uh, that said, sorry, folks, it's fascism. And I brought that up last night at dinner. And she said, 
you know, I should have put a, probably been a little more clear about it. But she said, but even when she wrote it, she got a lot of pushback from people who were acting like it was a slur. And she said, I'm not, it's a, it's, it's a historical thing. There is, there is a definition for this. And this is what we're seeing from Donald Trump. And, you know, that was seven years ago. And now, I mean, we even to the point where <laughs> Joe Biden used the F word, semi, semi-fascism, but it's, it's real. And, you know, I still feel like it takes a lot for institutional DC and institutional media like the New York Times to accept the reality of the moment we're in. And Ron DeSantis is coming after them. I know a lot of their reporters and, you know, the political reporters have already done their beat sweeteners and really tried to get some great access with DeSantis's office, but all he's going to use them for is punching bags. And instead of like calling out what he's doing, they're calling out how savvy he's being. It's really, it's really disturbing. But that's why the work that you do at Progress Report is so important, Jordan Zakar, and I think everyone should sign up for it. And I, I do. I just think I, I like it makes me so happy. No, it enrages me when I read it, but it makes me happy that <laughs> you are covering this stuff. And you cover like when I you, you've listened to Jordan tonight. He covers labor issues. He covers federal issues. He covers state covers state issues. He covers local issues. There's nothing gets by you. So it's progressreport.substack.com. You're on Twitter at Jordan Zakarin and then more perfect union, more perfect U.S. on Twitter. That's a, another tremendously vital entity that is keeping it real and calling out the shit. Thanks for taking some time with us tonight, Jordan. It's always uh, great to talk to you. I could talk to you for another hour, but uh, we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, and thanks for having me, and thanks for kind words. It got my, got my ego up before I go to bed, so I appreciate that. <laughs> All right. Have a good night, and I'll talk to you soon. The show went so fast tonight. Uh, big thank you to our guests, Jordan and Jason, and uh, Jack, they were all terrific. Big thank you to Chris and Thea, as always. And thank you to John Fugosang for letting me fill in for you. He'll be back on Monday. Take care, everyone. Stay strong. <laughs>